The Cloud Returns podcast covers all types of software investing, whether seed, venture capital, growth equity, private equity, debt, and even the public markets. All right. Happy to have Nick Tipman on the show today. He's got a great background. He was a chief marketing officer at a company called Greenlight Guru, which was in the healthcare market, effectively bootstrapped, went from zero all the way up to a large private equity transaction with JMI Equity. And now he's transitioned over to more of an investing uh, role, investor mentor. And he's focused on vertical SaaS. And I want to dive deep with him into how a very, very early stage vertical SaaS investor looks at businesses. And so Nick, maybe you could give a a bigger and better intro than I just did. That was great, Matt. Uh, appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. Excited to have a conversation here today with you and uh, your audience. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a founder, operator turned investor, advisor. I started a, a couple of companies after college. Uh, I like to say I had three learning experiences at this point that uh, didn't ultimately end up reaching their potential, but did have one exit, started a media company focused on startups and entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley, uh, bootstrapped that, did that for about two and a half years, realized it was never going to be as big as TechCrunch and uh, ended up selling it. And that was kind of the, the crossroads of, do I go try to start something on my own again, or do I partner with an experienced entrepreneur? And that was the uh, beginning of Greenlight Guru. David Duran, Greenlight Guru's co-founder and, and CEO, was someone that I had met while I was in college. He had just sold his previous health tech business for many orders of magnitude more and was saying that this engineer, John Spear, had been bugging him to, to start this company that was going to revolutionize the medical device industry. And I, I ended up joining uh, as the part of the founding team and, and uh, head of marketing there. The rest was history. It was there almost nine years. It was an amazing experience. Like you mentioned, we uh, effectively bootstrapped to tens of millions in ARR, 250 plus employees, uh, raised a big round from JMI Equity, just had, a, had an amazing learning experience. Lots of ups and downs over the over the almost nine years. And then towards maybe the middle of last year, had a great experience, stayed on for about two years post-transaction helped our CEO bring on a new executive team, got to do some fun stuff like lead product interimly, lead strategy, lead corporate development, got to do an eight-figure deal out of Denmark last year, which was a ton of fun. But what I learned in that process is that I was having a lot more fun over in Denmark working with the 22-person team than the 220-person team back here in the States. And so decided it was probably time for me to move on as well, helped hire uh, my, my replacement, my backfill, and now I've been uh, angel investing and advising full-time for, for almost a year now. Interesting. And then can you give people a snapshot of like Greenlight Guru, like what exactly vertical and, and down to the, like exactly what you guys did? Yeah. So Greenlight Guru, we were a vertical SaaS platform for the med device industry. So we were a quality and regulatory compliance platform, helped streamline medical devices to help get new devices to market, get approved by the FDA and the EU and then keep their devices compliant once they got them on market. You start to get market feedback, uh, complaints, customer feedback. You got to document all of that, um, keep it in your system of record and have it available if the FDA or regulatory body ever comes auditing you. So we were we built the med tech quality management category uh, and then we're the, the leader in that for, for many years, helping well over a thousand customers at this point. Tens of thousands of med device uh, get approved by the FDA over the over the years, but yeah, I've really really gone deep in the med device quality regulatory compliance space. 
And then this might be useful for like later in the conversation is like, you know, medical devices, med tech companies are all like quite large. It's a large global yep. market. Like what was yep. the TAM though of like regulatory software for medical devices? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's one that we got from a lot of investors, uh, particularly in, in the early days. But the, the market is as bigger than, than you would think. And I think this is something that we'll, we'll get into a little bit later on the, the size of niche markets. But when Greenlight Guru was going to raise our Series A back in probably 2015, 16, the conventional wisdom in VC land was that the TAMs weren't, weren't large enough to support venture-backed outcomes. And ultimately, we ended up deciding to bootstrap because we didn't get the terms with the, the partner that we were looking for. The TAMs are, are larger than, than people might expect in, in vertical SaaS. And I, I think that's what we found with MedTech and just the, the breakdown of the market, too, that many of the, the companies are larger. I think MedTech is a perfect example of the type of industry or type of market that you're looking for that are great fit for vertical SaaS. There's this small number of really large players, your Medtronics, your Johnson & Johnson, the, the largest of the large. But then actually 90% of medical device companies have less than 200 employees. And so you have this really long, fragmented, long tail of companies that are small and haven't had software built for them. And so when we were coming into the market, there were established legacy enterprise players that the largest of the large use, but there was no easy to use modern cloud-based software for the long tail of the market. And that's, that's what we built for. And like... I'm guessing the ACVs were almost like the size of what you would pay a regulatory software employee is what makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very similar. We, we like to say we didn't replace employee, but we augmented them because you still kind of like HubSpot with a marketer. HubSpot doesn't do your marketing for you. You still need your marketer. Yep. Same with Greenlight. You, you still need your quality and regulatory resource to run the platform, but the platform will make it easier. But yeah, we, we priced um, uh, along an FTE or similar to that. I think you can most similarly think of us as a, we were a mid-market solution, high tens of thousands ACV. Okay, great. That's, that's fascinating, right? And, you know, it's an interesting point for the rest of the conversation, right? And what you think about vertical SaaS, there's so many things you really can't know. Like, right, I had not fully thought through for medical devices that long tail, right? And it makes sense that, you know, across the country and all these suburban Office parks, there very well might be a 60-person company, 100-person company, and by definition, they're trying to make new products and get them approved, and you know they very well need some type of robust solution for that. So like, this is very illuminating for people thinking through um, vertical SaaS by, by getting into some of these practical examples. And then just kind of as a transition point, like what are your investment criteria today for a vertical SaaS company? Yeah, so I guess at the, the top highest end, they, they need to be a vertical SaaS. So I, I have kind of gone through my transition of being more of a general angel investor uh, across sectors and um, business models to really hone in and really believe that vertical SaaS and what I call vertical SaaS plus is the ultimate business model. Uh, so that's that's number one. But then also looking for post-product, some traction. So typically call it 50K to a million in, in ARR. I'm typically looking at pre-seed and seed stage deals. 
I'm looking for, is there a large enough TAM and a clear path to 100 million in, in ARR? And that's kind of how I'm looking at the, the market sizing. And then I'm looking at, at the, the founder market fit. Is there strong founder market fit? How is the founding team? Is there a technical resource on board? Why is the team going after this problem? What is their unique insight into the, into the industry? Um, do they have deep subject matter expertise? And then what is the, uh, the makeup of the market? Kind of what you're saying with the med device industry. What's the TAM? What's the size of the companies? What are the current solutions? Are they using manual pen and paper? Is it Greenfield? Uh, is it a, a market that's dominated by legacy players? But yeah, that's kind of at, at the high level. Vertical SaaS, post-product, some traction, pre-seed, seed, great founder market fit team, and then uh, attractive market dynamics. And I appreciate how specific you you got there because like that's very valuable. And on the hundred million ARR point, like over what horizon do you think a company needs to get there to meet your criteria? Yeah, I, I think we're still looking at the the standard three T two D, so triple triple double double double. Um, and so looking at can you reasonably get to that hundred million ARR mark and call it five to to seven years and Really, or go ahead. Yeah, and that's that's tough though. Like it, it, when you look at these TAMs and kind of number of legacy players, number of even cloud players, like a hundred million in even seven years, right? If that's yep. basically an IPO trajectory. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and I think this is one of the beauties of vertical SaaS is that there are multiple exit opportunities. And so, if you're on the IPO track and you really are looking to take that winner take most market dynamics, and you have a clear path, you want to go fill the war chest, right, and and win the market and, and become the dominant number one player. Uh, but there's also a lot of other paths that vertical SaaS companies are typically more cash, cash efficient and have better operating leverages. And you can end up bootstrapping to significant size like Greenlight Guru. And so it, it's not the only thing that is one path. I, I think the, the data is something like the standard time to IPO for a horizontal SaaS is like seven, seven years and the standard for a vertical SaaS is nine years. So it does take a, a little bit longer and you are kind of constrained by the given your strategy that you are focused on a certain market and industry. And there's only a certain amount of customers that are going to come up and be looking to change their system of record every so often. And so you may have to, to deal with that and it may be a little bit longer than some of the, the fastest growing horizontal. Um, but net of net, they're pretty similar and you're typically looking for the same-ish criteria, even if it maybe is just a smidge longer. Um, or if you don't see that clear path to call it 100 million in ARR in 10 years, then why why not? Is that a good business? But if, the, if they could get there in five to seven, then is it just a resource? Or like, what's the main constraint holding back the time that I look at? But if you could just look at number of potential customers times what your potential ACV in each one of those customer segments looks at, and is it a reasonable market penetration to get you to 100 million? Then you can kind of unravel it and start to figure out where are the real objections in a, from a timing perspective. And then for you, are you willing to look at 
opportunities where the ARR might realistically be 50 million of ARR, but they decide to raise far less capital, like maybe do pre-seed, seed, maybe an A. And so the ownership and the economics are different. Is that interesting to you or do you are you fixated on the 100 million ARR uh, trajectory? Yeah. So I will say that I'm, I'm open to that. I, I think that's one of the things that is attractive and why I like the, the vertical SaaS model is because, like you mentioned, there are those attractive uh, exit opportunities. Now, if a company was only, quote unquote, only going to get to 50 million in ARR, I would still be looking for what is the path to 100 million? What is the second act? How can they layer on fintech products? How can they expand across the value chain? If I can't reasonably come up with an answer on how they would get there from the very beginning, maybe I would look at passing. But if their strategy that there's a clear path to 100 million, but maybe there for whatever reason, their market team, the, the certain context of their situation shows that they can bootstrap and they can get to 10, 20, 50 million in ARR, much more capitally efficient. And that's the best route for the management team, founding team, board, all the, the shareholders involved. Like we'll, we'll definitely still look at that. Uh, and again, I think that comes back to the fact that we're, that I'm in investing at the pre-seed and seed stage is that you can still get good returns and hit some doubles, triples with those, call it 100 to $500 million outcomes versus your home runs and your grand slams like your Toast and Shopify's and, and Procore's. Interesting. And, and while we're here, because it, you know, translating ARR to TAM is an interesting discussion and just kind of like, well, your level of penetration. What are mm-hmm. you, how do you think about like your minimum TAM? I know it's very case specific, but like give something tangible for like a founder to, to orient around. Yeah. So I really, I like to do bottoms up TAM analysis. And so I'm trying to figure out and validate two things. One, what's the number of potential prospects in that industry? And then what's the makeup from however you segment that industry? Typically it's size or FTEs or revenue. And then what's your expected ACB that you can get from those different segments? And let's just call it, let's use a round number like 10% of the market. Let's say you captured 10% of the market. Does the number of those prospects times the ACB times 10% equal 100 million or more? That's kind of the back of the napkin check that I'm looking at and that I would recommend to founders kind of do the, the same way. The, the other way, kind of the top-down way to look at the TAM that I like to look at as well is what's the overall spend in the market? How many billions uh, of of TAM or or spend uh, GMV is in the market? And then what's somewhere between one to 5% of that TAM? And so when you kind of go top-down, if you're looking at just a pure SaaS solution, you might expect to be able to capture 1% of that market uh, from a revenue standpoint. But this is where you add in the, the vertical SaaS plus model and layering in your, your fintech solutions, um, your marketplaces and, and different ways that you can expand across the value chain. And now you're looking at maybe capturing somewhere from two to five percent of the revenues in that market. And so if you look at it both top down, bottoms up and both of those equal over 100 million, now you, you probably should feel pretty good. And it's interesting that you brought up like the take rate 
concept where you're using more of like a gross market value or like total, total revenue, like just all revenue in the restaurant industry. And this makes yeah. sense that there's, you know, baseline take rate for the software. And then it's yeah. interesting how well payments translate to GMV or that's how the payment industry really works is GMV and that yeah. there's a similar, you know, 1%, one and a half percent take rate. So it's a good way. I don't hear people talk about kind of like take rate and GMV all that much. Uh -huh. There's a lot more of the, okay, you know, how many seats or how many contacts times an ACV less about looking at it through revenue and, and overall like costs within an industry. Yeah. And as a transition point, how focused are you on fintech opportunities and payment opportunities when you're diligencing uh, a vertical? Yeah, I, I think I'm actually pretty focused on it. I think uh, as I alluded to a little bit when the, the conventional wisdom in VC land for the last decade or so has been that vertical SaaS TAMs aren't large enough to support venture-backed outcomes. Even though Gordon Ritter, founder at Emergence Capital and, and chairman of the board at Viva, first wrote his initial industry cloud thesis all the way back in 2014, which was still almost a decade after they made their original famous investment in, in Viva. But what I, I think really woke up the VC market was the success of Shopify, of Toast of Procore of Service Titan of MindBody that we're able to layer on these these fintech products and I think it's that convergence of the the business model um, innovation of SaaS plus fintech and then also this infrastructure um, advancement with embedded services and productized APIs that allow you to implement these payroll insurance take rate payment products into your SaaS a lot easier. I think it's it's very important. It's definitely something that, that I'm looking at and uh, I would recommend to all founders, boards out there um, be looking at pretty heavily if you're, you're taking the vertical SaaS route as well because it's just been proven by the winners that the, this works and there's there's a lot of revenue on the on the table if you're not going the fintech route. And would you say these like embedded APIs and embedded services, you know, that there's third party tooling to allow you to do this have kind of reduced the capital needs and the engineering needs of some of these seed stage companies you're looking at? Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I think one of the, the tailwinds that we're seeing with vertical SaaS, and I think this relates to generative AI as well, is that a lot of the functionality and the value in vertical SaaS comes from stitching multiple workflows together. And what you could consider standard functionality of scheduling, booking, checkout, general ledger, like what, whatever it is, your innovation isn't coming so much from the software feature set, but it's how you package it and put it all together and customize that workflow for the unique industry that, that you're going after. So, yeah. And to that point about the workflows and you talked about founder market fit, could you go like deeper in like, what are examples of founder market fit? Like what, how much time have they worked in the industry or what do Dillard, like where they went around and 
uh, rode in pest control trucks for three months? Like, what are some examples to like tease out what founder market fit really means? Yeah, founder market fit's a, an interesting one. I think uh, Gordon Ritter also wrote this in his original thesis, talking about the talent trifecta. Uh, and so really looking for someone that has the business, sales, go-to-market expertise, someone that has the domain subject matter expertise, and then someone that has the, the technical chops to get the product built. When looking specifically at the subject matter expertise, I'm really looking at why and how did this person have a unique insight into this market and why now and why them? And I think that that can vary. I think in Greenlight Guru's case, I'll use John Spears, the, the quintessential subject matter expert example. John started his career at Cook Medical back in the 90s, working on design controls. Uh, and in 1996, the FDA came out with a, a new regulation called 21 CFR Part 820 to get uh, nerdy on you. And it rewrote how you have to manage your design controls. And John was in charge of the design control compliance aspect of all of the products at Cook. And it was a manual, broken, literally basements full of paper and filing cabinets. And he had to keep all this managed. Eventually, that moved to spreadsheets and uh, folder trees and document management. And eventually, he left and ended up consulting for design controls and a broad early medical device quality management systems. And he did that for, I don't know, five, 10 years. And the whole time he was always like, like, there has to be a better way. There has to be, there should be a purpose-built solution specifically to manage this. And that's where he was bugging David for all of those years that someone needs to build this, someone needs to build this. And it just so happened that the time was finally right. But John had essentially spent 15, 20 years of his career focused specifically on this problem to have the unique insight and to know that this is how the top companies in the world is doing it. And then also this is how the most innovative and newest startup companies that are doing it from his consulting activity and really had the full range and spectrum of the problem of the current solutions and of the market. And it was kind of that unique aspect of his experience and the time and, and everything that you pull it all together. And that's why he is the perfect only person in the world to build Greenlight Guru. And so with uh, that example you use from like Greenlight, like that level of founder market fit is you know really obvious and you can see it in the bio and their, their history. But you know, for a whole range of people who are starting a SaaS, like that might not be feasible or might not be realistic. And specific to a pitch deck, if you're trying to convey founder market fit, like what are some things that you've seen that have worked well? Because not everyone's going to have that opportunity to meet you in person and kind of convey that and show the excitement and the expertise. And you might only be able, be able to look at slides. Yeah, I think I, I saw someone execute this pretty successfully recently, someone that, that definitely has subject matter expertise, but it's not 20 years in the industry like John. It was um, maybe three or four years at, at a consulting like McKinsey or, or Deloitte in the specific area. And then they their co-founder had relevant uh, experience in the aerospace and defense sector with 
of big names that, that everybody would know. Um, if I said, and I don't want to give them away here per se, but I really like the way that they positioned it because it's not that 20 year background, um, but they do have experience but it's not like immediately obvious as to why they would be solving this very specific problem within procurement in the aerospace and defense space. But what they did was show that they had a hundred customer discovery interviews with their target market. And they recorded all of those using a call recording service like Gong or Chorus. And then they pulled out the number of times that competitors or ancillary solutions were being used. And they basically said like, hey, there's this huge big white space here. We did these hundred call recordings. Here's what we heard in the calls. Here's what we pulled out. And competitive products were only mentioned three times, but manual, broken, paper-based, siloed were mentioned 200 times. And I thought that was a really good way of saying like, hey, we know this market. We may not have been doing this for decades, but we do know what we're talking about. And then here's validation back from the market itself that's validating what we're saying in our pitch deck, essentially. That's a phenomenal answer because that like very, very specific and actionable and someone can put that into their plan. And, and it's yeah. also impressive, right? That they're actually doing the legwork, right? Which not everyone does. You know, we recently had Bowery on the podcast and it became really clear that, you know, almost all of these niches and vertical SaaS are really going to start attracting venture capital. Like as a comparison, like the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of these niches were out there. You were able to bootstrap, able to develop like a really attractive market position, uh, a gem of a business without very much like venture capital back competition. And I think that's changing. Does that concern you as you think about like being a seed stage investor and kind of this flow of venture capital into all of these opportunities? I don't know that I would say it would concern me. I think it, it certainly raises the bar and makes you need to level your game up. But I also think it levels up the, the quality of the investors, the quality of the founders, the opportunity set that you're going after. Um, no, I, I don't think that the, the competition is a bad thing. I think you are correct that there are a lot more VC dollars that are going to be flowing into these legacy and or boring industries that previously were either had capital efficient businesses or were thought to not be large enough to support vertical or uh, venture backed outcomes. But I, I think there's just too many tailwinds for vertical SaaS. And I don't know if the match of capital to the opportunity, like where that'll shake out. I think we'll look back in five and 10 years and, and be able to, to kind of figure that out and armchair quarterback it. But right now, like I believe that vertical SaaS companies will continue to take TAM from their horizontal competitors as these VC dollars come in and you build this modern, easy to use, consumer grade enterprise products for these legacy industries that have never had such or have been stuck on pen and paper. Like I, I think the the pitch to the consumer of an all-in-one, easy to use, modern, always up to date, like that value prop is going to play across any industries. And I think it'll be really hard for a sales force to come in and say why a med device company should use 
Salesforce versus whatever the Greenlight isn't in med device CRM, but whatever the, the med device version of the CRM is that also attaches to their marketing automation, that also has a database of the top med device manufacturers and all the doctors already built into the data set that comes out of the box. Like, I, I think because the value prop for the consumer is such a no-brainer, if we continue to build these solutions, people are going to start to, to flip and move over. And then I think you also have the Again, a Gen AI tailwind in vertical SaaS of the possibility of this idea of leapfrogging vertical SaaS adoption. And so I don't know if you've ever seen, there's kind of this famous graphic from McKinsey from a few years back that shows like the digitization of all the industries and it shows the industries and then like the heat map yep. of how digitized they are. Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty famous. Like there's still a lot of undigitized industries. And if we're looking, sitting here in 2023 and you, these industries haven't adopted SaaS solutions. It's one of two reasons. It's like either they aren't available or for whatever reason, the hurdle, the pain of change is greater than the pain of staying the same. But I think with Gen AI, you may be able to get to some of these wow experiences and some of these just get tasks done for you out of the box that are so magical and so 10x better than the current solutions that you may see a whole wave of new vertical SaaS adoption that's coming off of this change of pen and paper that skipped this whole like cloud era of the last 20 years that we've been in. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I think like that's a great like counterpoint on the vertical SaaS is that in this modern era, these vertical products can be fundamentally better. Right. That in a way that the things being built in 2004, 2008, it was just impossible. Right. No one was able to embed payroll or embed payments. Right. It was just totally unrealistic. And I saw that in my investing career and that now you, you can build these great products and that that horizontal stack of stitching together HubSpot and Stripe and Gusto or, or however you would do it, that if you're a a doctor's office, a dentist, a landscaper, what have you. Yeah, these products, you know, it's hard for the horizontal to compete there. Yep. And then on, on this gen, yeah, on this gen I front, the uh, gen AI front, skipping, like leapfrogging. And like, are there any uh, specifics on these kind of uh, areas that have avoided digital to date that you could see AI changing that adoption curve? I have two off the top of my head that I can think of, but I, I don't want to get into the, the specifics or, or call, call them out quite yet here. But one would be like the home services space, but they've, they've put together a solution that just literally wasn't theoretically possible before some of the advancements with Gen AI and the way that they're able to take in data, structure unstructured data, and and then have a whole workflow behind what they're doing with this technology with Gen AI today. And so I know that's kind of like wrapped in secret, but it, it opens up a use case that just literally wasn't possible before and literally created a whole new TAM or is going to be pulling TAM away from a traditional way that this home services gets done today to where they're going. I think another example is on uh, an analytics solution that I've spoken to recently 
of just the way that they're able to bring in and ingest data from other systems and text messages and email and just things that we haven't been able to do before to now actually bring in and build a unified data set and a unified data model for an industry where that just hasn't been the case and hasn't been able to be done before. And there have been plenty of companies that have tried and either not worked out and or are at kind of their terminal rate of velocity already. And this is allowing them to come in with a whole new solution to a long-standing existing problem. Interesting. And I had written before all of this, I was going to ask you like the very typical AI question that specific to being a seed stage vertical SaaS investor, do you see AI as an opportunity, neutral or a threat? Yeah, I I think this one is pretty clear for me if it hasn't been obvious in the conversation so far, but I I think it's a a huge opportunity. I think there there definitely are some threats, but the pros far outweigh the cons, uh, in in my opinion, uh, here. I think one, you have vertical SaaS, and I know you mentioned to keep this at the pre-seed or early stage, but over the long term, Gen AI have this amazing, beautiful moat of building this unique proprietary data over time that you just don't see in horizontal SaaS companies. And so I think over the long term, vertical SaaS are some of the best position to really have a a strong defensible moat over the long term with this proprietary data that they're creating. Two, I also see the opportunity, we talked about the ability for AI to be applied to legacy industries and potentially have this leapfrogging of SaaS adoption, reducing time to first value, getting these wow experiences of outcomes magically happening for people. And then I think the the third big opportunity that I see with vertical SaaS companies and, and Gen AI really comes around maybe like phase two or phase three of Gen AI where we could potentially see a, a, a pretty significant reduction in CAC maybe across all SaaS companies, not vertical or horizontal, but really being able to increase the operating leverage of your go-to-market org with Gen AI of being able to be uh, a co-pilot or potentially handle a lot of the tasks that are are handled in the go-to-market org. And so this is a whole nother conversation, but the future of the go-to-market org with Gen Gen AI could look vastly different, but I think it could also end in a much leaner and or more efficient go-to-market organization, which again, is just a tailwind for the operating leverage of these vertical SaaS companies. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. And (laughs) we'll give a question we got from the audience. Uh, Eli Dukes, who's uh, a great, great writer on Substack, we'll include it in uh, the show notes. It's called Verticalized. Um, He had a few other questions that you've already proactively covered. These answers have been so good, but the specific question he had here was, what's the bigger challenge in verticals has, go-to-market or product? Ooh, that's a tough one. Yeah, and love, love Eli and uh, his verticalized uh, substack, great, great substack. Oh, go-to-market or product? As someone that has has led both at a vertical SaaS company, it's a, it's a tough question for me, but... If you make me cheat, I think I'd have to say it's definitely product. And I, I think that's because when you take the vertical SaaS model and growth strategy 
you strategically self-limit your TAM and the potential customer base that you could go after by going vertical, which is why it's so important to take the layer cake product strategy and continue to expand your product and look to grow your ACV over time because typically your market isn't growing at the, the same rate or potential customers. And with that though, that means that you have to have a best in, best in class product. Like everything we talked about of why you would choose a vertical SaaS over a horizontal SaaS means you got to have a great product that works well, that gets the job done and, and has a high NPS. Because one of the one of the benefits that you see with vertical SaaS is the lower CAC and potential to have this word of mouth growth um, that leads to the lower CAC. But that's kind of a double edged sword. Word of mouth spreads fast both ways. If you have a low NPS and a bad product, that also is going to spread really fast. So I think the bar for having great product and consistently having great product over time is higher in vertical SaaS. And therefore, if you push me and push came to shove, I think over the over the long term, product does end up being more important or a, a bigger challenge in vertical SaaS than than go to market. It's interesting because, you know, through this conversation, we talk about like embedded payments, embedded payroll, all of this on AI. You, you kind of see the opportunity sets getting bigger, but the also opportunity and decision making frameworks for product. Like it's becoming a harder product to manage and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on like how you assess kind of like a founder and the founding team's product management skills, like how you assess, will they be able to take advantage of this, set the right product direction, not get too far off course and build the right thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I, I tend to wait to the long-term roadmap, especially at the early stage of the pre-seed and seed versus maybe the short-term, near-term roadmap. And when you're looking at the longer Term. I think it's the more strategic, like three time horizons, today, tomorrow, future. I think that's where I'm looking for. Are they thinking about the uh, financial aspects, embedded payroll, insurance? Uh, how are they thinking about their, their growth strategy more than anything else? I, I just had to make a, uh, well, when it comes down to their product management chops, then like more than getting into like the detailed day-to-day of that, I believe that you can hire a great product leader. Maybe that's the the founder CEO. Maybe that's on the founding team. Maybe that's someone that they need to go get from an advisor or hire. Uh, I think that's a solvable problem with a body um, per se and the, and the right person. But I think the strategic insight of thinking long-term, like that's more what I'm looking for at the early stage. I think maybe if you're like, series a b and c and like you're really looking to scale and you're either already have your second act product or going to be releasing your second act product like then it's probably gonna matter a lot more on the nitty-gritty but i think the proof is in the pudding of can they build an mvp and what's the feedback on their product to date and then just looking at more or less the velocity of the changes and how they're handling that feedback is what I'm looking for on like the granular level uh, in the early days. Awesome. That's like a phenomenal answer. And then another kind of interesting experience that you have is you've already been a very active LP in a number of funds and you kind of fit right in this trend of operator funds. I know, I believe you're a LP at stage two GTM fund and a few others, right? Which 
for everyone else in the audience, maybe you'll give a background on what operator funds really are. And so maybe that's a first starting point about your LP activities. Yeah. So been been investing now for almost three years. And uh, like you mentioned, LP and in, in over 10 funds now, many of them are all of them merging, many of them first-time funds. But what I've seen over, call it those last two to three years, is a, a shift in the VC market. And when you talk to founders, like founders want to talk with other investors that have relevant experience and can empathize with their journey and provide real value add. And if you are a founder and or operator that has ran a similar model as the companies that you're investing in, you are going to have that relevant experience. And I think that's invaluable to bring on the cap table. And I think founders are realizing this as well. And I've seen this time and time again throughout my portfolio of a hot company that had either already closed their, their round um, or already had a lead investor in place, either open a round back up to bring an operator VC, micro VC onto the cap table, or a, a tier one VC is reaching out to the operator fund to bring them into the deal because of their specific, specific unique value add, whether that's like stage two and go to market fund, which are really around go to market or something like operator fund or marketplace capital where their background's really in marketplace or the fintech fund, like whatever that expertise that you're looking for. I think founders are looking for that lead tier one investment, but then they're looking to round out their rounds with these specialists, not too dissimilar how you would build an advisory board for the most part. And so that's, that's kind of what I, how I see these micro funds, operator, founder, VCs, and, and why I think they're on the uprise or the, the trend right now. And just like a tactical question for founders who are like interested in, in raising capital from an operator fund, are there any like nuances in terms of like the outreach, the fundraising process, because they're set up different than a traditional kind of financial investor only firm with a handful of people kind of very identifiable because one dynamic with these operator firms too, is you can go on LinkedIn and there's, many, many people because the LPs are very active and even put it on their LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah. I, I think the advice that I would give to founders is just really understand their unique focus and, and value prop. Um, really understand how they can complement you and complement the value of your lead investor. I think the other maybe slightly unique thing is that most of them don't lead rounds. Uh, and so I think you can think of the operator VC is very similar to an angel investor. They might not be the lead, but they can be super helpful in helping you catalyze that round and make introductions to other top tier VC firms that, that are in my network, their network, whoever whoever that is. And so I think that that is unique is that they often don't lead rounds, but I think to founders, I would say, don't not reach out to them until you have a lead because I think you'd find that most of them have a process to handle both companies that are coming inbound or being introduced that have a lead in place and that don't have a lead in place. And they can either help catalyze that for you or come in. And so that's why I like to say a lot of these are, are often either the first check or the last check in the round. 
They, they can end up being the first check that they'll commit and then go help catalyze around, or they end up being the last check because the tier one VCs want to bring them in for their specific value add, or the founders want to bring them in for their specific value add. Interesting. And then also just having been an LP, and it sounds like many, many of your uh, LP commitments are with emerging managers. Uh, and you know, there's always an audience, everyone out there who works at an investment fund, there's so many potential emerging managers who kind of want to gauge whether they could do it or how to go do it. So what are some learnings you've picked up as an LP in emerging managers that you would recommend the GP implement or just tactical advice here? Yeah, I think if I go on tactical for the GPs and the LPs, it's like, for the GPs, your your LP, I don't know if this gets, I want to call them their customers, but they're, they're your stakeholders. And you got to think of it similar to a sales process and similar to a SaaS company that the recurring value happens over time. It's not just when you make that investment. And I think this goes back to the trend that we talk about of the rise of the micro LPs is I would tell the GPs to really understand the persona of your LPs and what they're looking for and hoping to get out of the investment and that not everybody invests for the same reason. And so very similar to angel investing, yes, everybody's looking for a financial return, but there's a lot of different reasons that people angel invest, whether it's to be around founders, whether it's to get unique insights into a particular market, whether it's deal flow, like what for, for later investments, like you name it. I think there's a lot of reasons that people invest. I think that's similar with these micro LPs or just understanding the persona of your LPs and having a unique pitch and unique offering for the different type of personas. And then to continue to use the, the SaaS analogy of kind of post, post-sale or post-investment of just have a, have a good process for keeping your LPs up to date and finding ways to keep them engaged. Again, the micro LP persona I mentioned often looks a lot like the angel investors and angel investors often can be the highest value add per dollar on the cap table because they're wanting to help out. They want to, to work for you to, to help the business. And so I think I would tell the GPs to find ways to actively get your LPs involved, um, whether that's sourcing, helping win, supporting like they want to help and make it easy for them to help and continue to support you and think of them very similar to your angel investors because they're believing in you, they're believing in your vision, they're believing in your fund. But oftentimes as these first funds, writing an LP check is very similar to writing an angel check into a pre-seed or seed stage fund because oftentimes you're betting on the manager and their vision just as much as any track record or history. Interesting. Interesting. Well, look, this has been a great episode. Uh, I think it would be helpful for, I think there's going to be a lot of founders out here who've been very impressed by you and might want to uh, hear your investment criteria one last time. Yeah, absolutely. So right now, personally writing smaller angel checks, five to 15 K alongside other leading investors, um, but focused vertical SaaS, early stage, pre-seed, seed, post-product, some traction, 50 to a million, 50K to a million in ARR, looking at industries that are legacy, disjointed, broken products, legacy owned, and then strong founder market fit. Great. Well, we're going to put Nick's socials and some of his content uh, that he's written in the show notes. 
you obviously have his investment criteria and Nick, I really appreciate the time and all of these like deep dives and the insights. This has been a great episode. So thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Really, really appreciate you having me on. Hopefully the audience enjoyed it. And yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter, LinkedIn. Those are the best places. Feel free to, to reach out uh, via email, connect with me on LinkedIn. And yeah, w- would love to chat. Awesome. All right. Thank you again, Nick. All right. Thanks, Matt. Take care. See ya.